You're listening to the Horsefest podcast with the founders of Horsefest. I'm Thea. And hello, this is Heidi. Each podcast is dedicated to you and your passion for everything horse. We'll be speaking to elite riders, equestrian experts and special guests, all focused on bringing you inspiration, insights and learning in a way that our horse tribe will enjoy. So today we're joined by Andrew McLean, a leading expert in the field of equine behaviour and specialising horse training and behaviour modification. Now, Andrew is talking to us, uh, glamorously for us anyway, it feels like, from just outside Melbourne in Australia today. So a very warm, I was going to say a warm welcome, but actually you're cooler than us at the moment, aren't you? So a, a welcome to the Horse Fest podcast, Andrew. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I'm in the southern part of Australia, so it's not quite as warm as the as Sydney or, or Brisbane, that's for sure, especially this time of the year. Yeah, but a very lovely part of Australia, for sure. Yeah, it is lovely, yes. We're on a peninsula down in the south of uh, the, the continent. Yeah, I had a look at the map and there, there's, there was a tourist board um, website. It looks rather delightful. So um, I'm imagining the beauty around you today. Um, so, Andrew, we'd love our listeners to hear a bit about how you first became involved and interested in horses. Right, well, I came from quite a horsey family, I suppose. My mother was a very well-known rider in Australia uh, in the show ring back in the late 40s and 50s. And um, my father's, well, my aunt, my father's sister was also a rider and, and um, that's how my parents met. And my mother taught my father um, how to ride horses and he was pretty good at sports. So he ended up being a show jumper and they did a lot of shows and they did uh, a lot of hunting together. Um, they were a member of all three hunt clubs in Melbourne, so they were pretty keen on um, chasing hounds. And um, <laughs> so we, we, I can't remember not being able to ride. I remember my first pony was a, a Shetland that I, <laughs> I, I, grew, I grew to really not like at all oh, no. because <laughs> there wasn't really a space in its body where I could stand, where I couldn't be kicked or bitten. And um, <laughs> So I ended up riding the fence. My brother had a really, my older brother had a very nice one, but I ended up having to, I ended up sitting on the fence and riding the fence until they realised that probably I should get another, I should be given another horse. So my grandfather <laughs> had a stock horse and um, it was retired. So at the age of, I think I must have been five, I had this 14 hand, wow. I think it's more than 14 hands, but anyway, quite a large stock horse, but it was a very nice horse and um, that was my first pony. And then as a teenager, we moved, our family moved to King Island, which is a, a small flat island in between Australia and Tasmania, or the mainland of Australia, I should say, because Tasmanians don't like being considered not part of Australia, of course. Um, and there it was a whole new world because it was a pretty wild place and had so much wildlife. And I spent... Uh, every night after school, jumping on my horse um, with my friends. We would chase kangaroos and have fun with doing that sort of thing. And we could, e we could even gallop up beside them and grab them by the tail and then we, we, we didn't do anything else with them and let them go. But just doing it was fun. And there were wild peacocks there and we chased those. Wow. And um, also I became very interested in – this is really – Oh, we've lost you, Andrew. 
my, my chief, well, my chief love is zoology, and we had a um, a large lagoon near us, and I would go there and catch snakes, and I, I, I used to kill them with my stirrup iron, but um, <laughs> and um, bring them back home on my horse, and skin them and make belt, belts and hat bands, and my family got pretty sick of belts and hat bands, and <laughs> but I realised there was a whole lot more to it than you know to snakes than doing that, so I. One day, just spent time watching, and I never, never killed a snake again after that. And um, found them so fascinating, and that was really the beginning of my love for zoology. So, it was from there that um, I, I was in pony club. There, we formed a pony club team for the state horse trials in Tasmania, and our horses went on a, um, a barge in in, in crates. <laughs> oh um, wow! It, it was a long crossing. It was um, eighteen hours, and. Um, oh. And my horse tried to jump out of the crate and uh, on one crossing and half managed and scun his leg. But anyway, we, we formed a team and we went to the Tasmania Pony Club horse trials and that led me to eventing and show jumping. So that was really how it all came about for me. My brother, yeah. by the way, older brother was a jockey, a good jockey. My next brother down, he was a jockey as well. And my youngest brother, we were, there were four of us, he would have been pretty interested, I think, in horses. But as a small child, when we went to the beach chasing kangaroos, he was probably too small to be let loose on a galloping horse. And he used <laughs> to get off it and make it run home and then tell our mother that actually it bucked him off, which was completely <laughs> untrue. And um, we also used to throw him from one horse to another. We rode there, actually. So we threw him Stunt from riders. one horse to another galloping along the beach because I'm 10 years older than he is. My older brother was 12 years older. So Nigel didn't really like that too much. So <laughs> he told our mother he wasn't ever riding horses anymore. This was the end of it. And he would become a fisherman. And so he ended up doing a degree in aquaculture. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. My children moan about somebody stealing the football and not yeah. being thrown from one horse to another. That's brilliant. <laughs> Um, so it sounds like galloping uh, uh, galloping around in the wild is quite a theme because I know that you've competed to a very high level in lots of formal disciplines like eventing and show jumping and dressage. But I was really curious about you racing bareback in Australia and New Zealand. So tell us about that. The speed freak in you has come out, clearly. Yeah, it has. I mean, I, well, we all love galloping and you see, we didn't have motorbikes on the island at all. So on the weekends, we would go to the nearby town, which was six miles away. And um, we also uh, went, rode to Pony Club. Nobody had a horse horse trailer. And, uh, and so we would race to Pony Club. And that was uh, <laughs> the only bad about thing about Pony Club was we would always get pretty bad marked for presentation because our horses were very sweaty. <laughs> and um, but yeah, we just loved galloping, so we just did it a lot. And and some of the local people on the island became interested in in dressage and would send me horses to because I was just a young teenager uh, who could ride most horses um, to retrain because they were a bit scared. But we ended up getting so ex excited about having these fancy horses that we galloped them on the beach and. <laughs> And they weren't very impressed because the horses became very joggy and, <laughs> well, they didn't buck anymore, but 
didn't stop too well either. <laughs> it just went fast. It's got really no brakes anymore. <laughs> no brakes, no. Anyway, I'm still good friends with those people, so I didn't totally destroy the friendship. But it was a little rocky for a while. Oh, I'd imagine the horses had a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So did oh. you mention, so you mentioned about my, uh, at the local races, um, the uh, bareback racing we did. Mm, at the end yeah. of every race meeting on the island, um, they, they had races all through the summer and people would buy, you know, old race because nobody could afford a really fancy one, you know, one big thing. So they'd get some old, some horse from Darwin or somewhere like that that had failed and aiming it for the King Island Cup. And at the end of every race meeting, there was a, there were hack races for kids. And the only um, stipulations were that you had to ride bareback and the horse had to be grass-fed, but it still could be a, a thoroughbred. And um, I had a, my neighbours had a wonderful little mare that was a runt. Um, you know, just a small thoroughbred. She was only 14-1. Oh, no, she was like, smaller than that. She was 13-3. And, um, but she could go like the wind. And I won so many hack races. And that's really got, you know, got me started in uh, my love for that. And it, it was, uh, they don't do it anymore, unfortunately, because it's sort of deemed, I mean, a few kids did fall off, but nobody was very injured. It was just, you know, you hit the turf and roll a bit. <laughs> yeah. You can't get your foot stuck in the stirrup, that's for sure. <laughs> no, that's true. I, I always think, you see, from that, that led me to my uh, beginning in my career, partly led to that in uh, breaking in horses because um, I'd learned about the Jeffrey method, which is an Australian method, um, not widely known in Australia, but there's a book about it called the Jeffrey method of horse training. And a friend of mine was doing that. And um, I would go to their place when I was in Tasmania, uh, when I was there at uni, and I would go and stay there at Swatback because I didn't want to study for Swatback. I'd rather cram. So um, I used to go there, and he showed me how to break in horses this way, and it really suited me because it was bareback to start with, and um, it was a, a, it's a really wonderful thing, and you can... One thing about riding bareback is I, I don't think you can get that hurt riding bareback, although people are very cautious of it, because as you say, there's no stirrup. You can't be caught on anything. You tend to just slide off. Yeah. It's easy to bail, isn't it? And um, That's right. Very easy. Yeah. You just grab hold of a piece of mane first and then off you go. Mm. Yeah. I used to have, when I had my pony, um, I didn't have very horsey parents, so they weren't aware of the silly things that we used to get up to. So uh, <laughs> I remember going into a friend's back garden with her and her pony and her very non-horsey parents. And they used to uh, do jumps in the back garden, which we rules where we had to jump bareback. And it was like a back garden puissance. <laughs> it, was <bonkers>. <laughs> <laughs> it was so much fun, though. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, um, it's really, uh, it's a shame. It's, um, you know, we live in a risk-averse world now, mm. so... Nobody's yeah. very keen to promote it. We used to do it at our pony camps because we ran them for years and years at the Australian Equine Behaviour Centre and we even taught kids how to fall off. We had a couple of mattresses that we had covered in um, material, a hardy material, and um, we taught kids how to roll when they fell off because every child is likely to fall off at some point in time. Mm, definitely, I could have done with that. Actually, yeah, that, it's incredibly useful. I've seen video of... Um, one of the jockey 
schools in Newmarket where they they teach jockeys to forward exactly that off a mechanical horse and onto a mat now so yeah. a much more um upmarket version of, of your original invention Andrew you could have made a mint if you'd uh, <laughs> if you trademarked it <laughs> yeah that's right my, my, my younger brother still teaches jockeys how to fall off um mm. he, he does that uh with the um racing association yeah, useful skill, very useful skill. Um, so, Andrew, what what's triggered you to move into the research and the training that you're specialising in now? How did you get to the how did how did the journey progress? Oh, well, that's a good question. You know, it was really because I loved eventing so much, and um, when I became uh, more immersed in that sport, I started to um, win my way to the top, and I was doing what was called advanced in those days. Um, and I had I ended up getting a scholarship from, from the Institute of Sport uh, for my eventing, and I'd already been in an Australian team, and so it gave me money for good, very good coaching. And yet, at the same time, I was now a qualified zoologist, and I I, I had a lucky break when I finished my degree. Um, I went back to uni and was teaching zoology. And um, which is, you know, just my animals are really my big passion and animal systems and how, how animals work. So when I was trying to understand what was being asked of me in tr training my horse, although it, it worked, I didn't really understand why it worked in the language of the coaches. So that's why I, I embarked on my PhD or my master's and then my PhD in, in um cognition and animal behavior to try and find that. And what I didn't realize at the time was that I was getting into a very um, uh, uncharted world where very little had been done. When I began my PhD, um, we didn't really know much about how learning applied to horse training. And that's really what I spent my time investigating and, um, and still do today. And there it led me in some really interesting directions because I teamed up with Paul McGreevy, which has been a wonderful thing for research because Paul's work is through, was through the um, vet school in Sydney, which really pumped out a lot of research and behaviour for dogs and horses. And um, at a certain point, um, I was still travelling the world and doing clinics in uh, 14 different countries with horses and dealing with horses with various problems and which I really enjoyed. It was very stimulating. Um, but people started to say, well, it's all good and well, you know, you're talking about learning and how to change horses' behaviour, but you're not talking about the bond between horses and people. And, you know, that was an interesting question because that was something, again, uncharted. And it's an important question, but we really didn't know much about it. So that led me on this journey culminating in 2014 where I gave a plenary about attachment theory and um, actually it was a joint plenary with Paul McGreevy and he also um, talked about arousal levels in horses and we realised something that horse people know and have known for a long time I suppose and I knew it in my own heart but I didn't know how where to start with it and that is that the arousal level um, the attachment and the affective states of horses, that is the emotional level, um, very much modulate how learning works. So 
you know, you have to choose your tools for training very care carefully. I don't mean in terms of whips and spurs. I mean in terms of whether you use some positive reinforcement, um, combined reinforcement, whether you use um, counter conditioning, uh, various other uh, habituation techniques. Um, these all uh, are very much predicated by those sorts of things. And so that journey also led me in this plenary to uh, invite other scientists to delve into attachment theory. And that's what people are starting to do now. In fact, it's been there have been a couple of papers published in the last 12 months on attachment theory. So it's been a really fascinating journey. I mean, it sounds like I've got a kind of designed life, but my life is the most random, undesigned life ever. I've just been doing what I've always loved to do, um, learn about animals and enjoy horses and, and, um, and elephants and, and have a good time. Yeah, and it, it, I think it's a, it's a passion that's probably led you on the journey, hasn't it? And, and that's what really comes across when we're talking to you, that, you know, that real desire to um, do the best for the horse, but also to educate the horse owners and help them understand more about their horses and their relationships with them. Yeah, that's very true. I, I'm a very enthusiastic teacher um, of these things. I'm not so much a, I'm not so keen on horse, um, you know, coaching lessons that much of, you know, just ordinary lessons. But I find problems really interesting to deal with. And especially, um, I'm really interested in the way you get this information across, rather than the sort of traditional systems of instruction, uh, you know, by getting, by questioning people with horses and finding out how they perceive what is going well and what is going badly and why it might be going badly and drilling down into uh, everything by a series of questions. And so I find that teaching and the imparting of it very, very interesting. Uh, and of course, it's a massive journey because horse riding has a tr very traditional background. It's um, you know considered as classical as art and I don't quite know what that does mean except that it's very old because they're really people talked about classical writing but there is in some respects you could say there is no such thing because every European country had its own form of classical writing you know there was classical writing in Sweden there was classical writing of course earlier in in Spain and then it went to Italy and when Spain annexed uh, Naples and um, so then the Italian school came up and then, you know, the, uh, Louis XIV sent his trainers down to learn that and then they developed the French approach and they're all a bit different. But, mm. yeah, it's a very, it's a, it's a fascinating area that uh, our modern horse sports have come from, but it still is totally bathed in tradition, folklore, mythology, especially in the way it's described. So... You know, I think it's great to see what people can do, but sometimes with coaches, you, I, I often think um, that if you translate what they're saying into more of an understanding of how to train horses and learning theory, etc., people would do better. And that's been my mission to teach people about those things. And so, how is so? If a, a rider was to to read your your papers and to understand more about what you do, what benefit would that give them? How would they? they and their horses 
improve or, or get more from it? Well, unfortunately, my papers are very specific about certain single aspects because that's really what science is about, is distilling things like that. So that, that probably there's not much to be revealed there. Um, in some of them, that's true. One we wrote about called The Roles of Ethology and Learning Theory in Horse Training. And there's another one I did with Yana Christensen, a recent one in 2017, um, on the application of learning theory to horse training. Um, and certainly there's a lot they can glean from those those ones. Um, and there's another one uh, about various desensitization techniques, etc. But I think more it's the publications of books uh, mm. where I tried to put it all together. Uh, and reading, even in a simplistic approach, um, my first major book was The Truth About Horses, and that was that's really written to give people an, an introduction as to how scientists think about things and therefore unpacking um, equitation. Because that's what we need to do, because one of the problems with modern teaching in equestrian areas right across the board is that people tend not to, te to teach people to train single learned responses as the foundation of multiple consecutive movements. You know, um, they'll teach you how to do a half pass, but nobody analyzes the specific requirements involved there where the horse, for example, is turning with his front legs and turning with his hind legs and bent, and they're all separate. And that's why we have our various aids. And one of the rules of learning is to apply our aids separately, rein and legs separately. They can be very fast together, just like words are in a conversation. But you only understand the conversation when you are very fluent in that language. And it's the same for the horse. When the horse is really fluent in all of the basic responses, you can put them together and they can go very fast. But in the beginning, they shouldn't be with a young horse. And they should not be also when you're retraining a problem. You have to go back and spell the, uh, the various things out. So that, that's really the heart of it um, for me is, you know, unpacking all of that uh, in teaching and teaching people how to understand. And it's, it's really quite easy to do. Once you get onto it, everybody says, it's such a no-brainer. I don't know why I didn't think of this myself. <laughs> And then others say, I already did that. When they, say that. when they say that, you already know you're on a very good, there's a good future because that's part of the journey of change in any kind of, um, you know, societal change, uh, any cultural change is that first of all, they resist strongly and deplore you and then they ignore you and then they start telling you that they've already, they always did this anyway. And that's, that's a good good space to be in. Absolutely. <laughs> and I, I love the I love the term, terminology unpacking and, and breaking it breaking it down essentially. And with with horses that are mature and have a problem, it, it sounds like it's kind of slow down to then go fast again and help those individual elements become become clear and 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 sort of move away from that confusion of multiple uh, multiple instructions so yeah that makes sense to me mm, it does and that, that's why you know there's a there are a lot of little echoes of the past in all of this and that's why um the great masters would always say that the walk is the mother of all of the gates and the reason for that 
is that first of all, the walk is slow enough that you can catch each limb because see, one of the things that really helps trainers understand how horses learn things when you're dealing with locomotion is that aid should be applied at the very beginning and first um, half of the swing phase of a limb. So if you want a horse to move sideways, um, you have to catch that same side limb when it's actually about to leave the ground, not when it's in the middle of stance, because when a limb's in the middle of stance, it, it essentially can't hear you. So that's where the walk is perfect, because you can catch each limb in a swing phase. And um, it's also perfect because every limb is separated. There are no two limbs um, exactly the same part of their swing stance um, cycle at the same time. So there's, there, there are so many good things about it. Um, it's easy to ride and it's easy to train and you can do almost everything at the walk. Mm. Uh, and you can then just speed, speed it up when the horse knows the answers to the questions and they become mm. a little bit um, automatic. Mm, yeah. Fantastic. And for any of our listeners, just we've been talking about some of your, your papers and your books, but there's also an article that um, you very kindly um uh, Steph Bateman, sorry, Steph Bateman, I can't speak this morning, um, has has written with your um, all of your insight and information about about applying learning theory. So people can look for that on our website. We'll put a link mm. on um, at the end. But moving on from horses, just briefly, because of course you're obsessed <laughs> with horses. Uh, you've also applied your work to elephants, and you have a co-founded charity foundation, don't you? We'd love to hear more about about how you're working with elephants and the, and the good that you're doing there. Oh, thank you. That, that is really fun and exciting. And um, I'll try to keep that brief because I usually don't, but I will. This <laughs> but it all started um, just because I was doing a horse clinic in, in Helsinki. And a of member course of course it w did. <laughs> yeah, of course. This is the randomness of my entire life. It's just yeah. a completely undesigned life. But I was doing a horse clinic and a member of WWF came and said that she'd been to Nepal working there and happened to notice that um, elephants were, you know, started and broken in in pretty rough kinds of ways. And this was fairly standard in, in Asia. And in, in fact, it's no different with horses in the West, the way it has been done there too, you know, like uh, throwing horses to the ground and, all, and hobbling and all those things that we, that some people take for granted and actually was once normalized. So, I, she asked me if I would be, want to be involved, so I said yes, went to Nepal, had one meeting uh, with a friend of mine at Melbourne Zoo just so I could be acquainted with what an elephant might look like because I'd never really <laughs> touched one. I'd seen them at the zoo and that's about it from a distance. Um, got to Nepal and discovered that these are actually the tallest Asian elephants in the world because there's a rule in biology called Bergman's rule that the further away from the equator you go with a single species, the bigger it becomes in general. And that's very true for elephants. So these elephants in Nepal were enormous. And I could not believe it that, you know, to see an animal that was, you know, nine or 10 feet at the shoulder, there's one that's even 12 and a half feet, you know, some wow. massive animals. Um, so I began there and, um, then I decided I would create an organisation of my own in Australia because it would be easy because I was working with uh, this scientist in Finland. And um, so we decided to do that. And she began her PhD in another area. And so I started that foundation with a 
guy from the zoo who came and helped me uh, with some things uh, in, in various uh, workshops in Nepal and India. And um, then we just got bigger and bigger and we formed the Help Foundation. And now we're the official training partners from this tiny little organisation. We're the official training partners for... Um, we were invited for Nepal, but they didn't have enough funding for us to go there. We didn't have enough funding to do it because we're a not-for-profit charity. But um, India got on board and really wanted us to be involved there. So I work in the south and the north and trainers from these surrounding areas were in surrounding states were invited. So we pretty much covered India uh, through the Wildlife Trust of India. And then, of course, Thailand really put their hand up. And more recently, Myanmar and Laos. And um, we've been working uh, strongly in, in Laos. Um, and that's at the Elephant Conservation Centre and also very strongly in Thailand. Um, it's been a really interesting, interesting journey. And um, basically, I went there with my training manual. There where I you know, basically broke everything down and unpacked everything. And just crossed out the word horse and wrote elephant and then <laughs> prayed to God that this would work. And it, it did. And presumably that's, that's, it's... The, that's the essence of the, the interesting thing about science. And there I was. You know, they'd ask me, have you got any elephants in Australia? And I'd say, I think we've, I think we've got a few, not many, in a zoo. <laughs> well, how could you possibly know about elephant training? Because we've been training them for 5,000 years. And it's handed down knowledge. But the fact is we could train an elephant to do whatever they want much faster than they could by just pushing the tradition aside. We never intended and we never did ever dispute any religious aspect of it because that's really would be wrong. But so we joined in the religious festivities and ceremonies for each elephant training session in Nepal and India, but then <clears throat> um, just went ahead and showed them how they could actually do it in a more efficient way. So Instead of being 10 weeks to train an elephant to be ridden, we would do it in one week. And it would be only two 20-minute sessions a day using a lot of positive reinforcement and with much happier elephants and far bolder ones. Because these elephants were used in the forest for uh, a wildlife census and also surveillance and anti-poaching. And so part of the surveillance and census was in, involved finding tigers and elephants aren't that happy about tigers but our elephants were so brave when they were trained this way without punishment mm. that um, the, wild, the conservation uh, foundation of Nepal said please just roll this out in Nepal because the vets had checked our five-year pilot program and found it to work so well that the, the, the elephants were so good and and they said, you know, the camps were so quiet now, they weren't full of screaming, unhappy elephants. And, oh. and we've moved on with that now. We're working on better welfare for them where we can unchain them and have them in yards and, and getting away from riding where now tourists engage more in ecotourism and just watch elephants in large social groups doing what elephants should do. It's, yeah. it's been really a wonderful journey. It's amazing to have such a massive impact on their welfare. Yeah, it is. It must feel really, really great. Yeah, it is really great when you think that it was never an intended program. It was um, all just because I was just following my nose, and I always say to young people, you know, if you're really passionate about something, don't let it go. You know, you'll, you'll just but explore it to the nth degree. 
that's what I think is the answer for everything. Absolutely. And then, so, oh, fascinating the elephants are. We're back to the horses now. (laughs) (laughs) We'll put put it down. I'm going to ask you a really tricky one because I think you've had so many incredible, memorable moments. But what has been your most memorable horsey moment so far? Well, um, I think, well, there are so many of them. I think winning Gawler three-day event, which is a very tough three-day event, said to be one of the toughest in the world in the old format. I had a marvellous little horse that I got for nothing, a thoroughbred off the track. He was um, so thin, um, and not from being not from being on the track, but it, when people purchased him off the track, they kept him and didn't look after him very well. He was covered in light, and he ended up being a terrific little event horse. And um, so... It was quite wonderful to win Gawler. Uh, I was living in Tasmania at that time, so I was the first Tasmania to win that competition. But then, you know, I've had so many other wonderful moments too with other horses, Woodmount Magic, who eventually was sold to Tim Collins in England um, and has sired many good horses in England. He was a thoroughbred stallion. He was the first Australian-trained thoroughbred stallion to, to be exported. Um, in anything other than racing, and the first horse in Australia to hit six figures, which was wonderful for us because we paid off our farm. Um, <laughs> but it, uh, he was a lovely horse, um, just such a easy to deal with stallion because I'd learned he was really my um, my pilot program for what I teach because I got him at six months of age and. Um, he was just so wonderful to ride and I lent him to the world champion at the time years ago in the 90s, uh, Vaughan Jeffries in eventing. Vaughan won our biggest one-day event here in Australia and um, and told me he was the best-trained horse he ever sat on. Um, and he it, it, he was just so clear. He, he was I rode him every event in a snaffle. Um, he had perfect breaks. Um, you could, you know, jump a really big fence, shorten the stride immediately and he would do a, you know, a corner. Um so that was wonderful. But again, on the teaching side, I think one thing that terrified me to do was to be a speaker at the Global Dressage Forum in front of, you know, the world's greatest dressage coaches. And here am I, uh, really not such a great dressage coach, but more of a scientist breaking into that world. And, you know, you could have heard a pin drop at the end and um and then they invited me back, and I had I had developed a much better way of judging dressage, which I still believe is a better way. It's a much more methodical, systematic way where people would understand clearly what marks they got, and it's it has been adopted by the North American Western Dressage Association, and we've done a lot of research there. We're going to publish a paper on it, and the and what the research has shown is that um, especially in uh, younger and new riders particular and, and judges particularly like that system. But, of course, the older judges can't get the old system out of their head, and I can understand that. But there are better ways of doing it, and there should be a judging revolution in dressage like there has been in every other subjective sport, with gymnastics, figure skating and di- diving. You know, um, they now have very much tightened up their judging and they're horrified to think that, you know, a rider can get, you know, six from one judge or five. But 
8.5 from another. I know judges sit in different positions, but it's not like, you know, one's a mile away. Yeah. <laughs> so um, going to the presenting there was um, such a big challenge and, um, and, and doing it for second and then uh, a second time was uh, really a great inspiration for me that I could really go ahead and explain to people about this um, you know, about this approach. Um, mm. Before then, I was a little bit um, hesitant, I suppose, because, you know, I just thought, uh, well, I'm breaking into like a bastion of tradition. Mm. But actually, there are plenty of intelligent people. It's really the smart ones who catch on to this, I have to say. Um, but there are plenty of intelligent people in the equestrian world that once they begin to get an idea, they really get onto it. And I gave Richard Davis and help with his horse. You know, he was in the winning British team. Uh, Wayne Shannon, an, another British rider, um, he's very much into this uh, approach now. So um, it's it's slowly getting there. And so I, when you ask me about my memorable memorable moments, I have to include my teaching moments too. Yeah. Mm. It's it's interesting. We we recorded a podcast with uh, Russell McKechnie Guire a few days ago, and he used an expression I'd not heard before, but it makes complete sense. And I'm relating it back to um, you putting your ideas in in front of of people that have a very long standing uh, tradition. And he he said you can lead. A, so if you want to make change, if you lead a horse to water, you can't make it drink, but you can make it thirsty i.e. make them curious with the information and then they move towards it. And I really liked that. So clearly yeah. the silence at the end of your first speech was was perhaps them getting a bit thirsty about the information. <laughs> yes, it, it, it was wonderful. Um, and it, I, I love that quote. That's, that's such a nice mm. one for sharing. Um, it, it's interesting, at the end of my judges, um, just when I explained my judging scale, and and uh, it, there's a fair bit written about it in the, in the various... Uh, media, but uh, it, this is quite some time ago. But um, again, you couldn't hear a pin drop, and there was just one question. And I was really expecting um, an avalanche because I was basically saying that the the current training scale that they call a training scale is not a scale at all, because to a scientist or even a musician, a scale is something that has a starting point and an end point and goes in a direction. And what we have with the current training scale is a series of directives and they're not wrong but they're just not scalar what i've produced is a scale that's more adaptable for training and for judging and training we use it for training it's really because what you're doing when you when you judge is you're judging training so why wouldn't you be judging how things are packed up when you unpack them mm. Oh, so Absolutely. when you said you'd be publishing that, roughly when do you think that might come out? Well, I don't know because I'm working with a guy in Canada called Michael Guerney and um, it's with him at the moment. Uh, and he's he's told me in uh, February, look, I'm on to it. And I did say to him, look, Michael, we're not in any great hurry for this. I was also involved in a, some big welfare papers um, and currently am still. So, um, but it will be done. It's, yeah, he, we'll he, look out for it. And he's the guy who's done all the research on how it's up t being taken up in North American Western dressage. Okay. Um, and we wondered also what the biggest challenge for you has been in your equestrian 
career question related career your career so far and, and how did you overcome it well my biggest challenge as a writer was dressage because I was just so bad at it um, <laughs> because, like, you see, I can relate <laughs> because you see when you have horses that go fast and you your background's in chasing kangaroos and loving the galloping and eventing. Um, in those days especially, you could still do well and not have a very good dressage test. And so I ended up um, having a, well, first of all, um, I met a, an Australian trainer called Mary Longdon, who's a well-known international trainer, and especially with disabled people now. Um, and Mary made sense to me about coaching and training and really helped me go from one end of the um, dressage field in eventing to the other end, like just completely in just 12 days in, uh, before a big three-day event. And it never, I never looked back after that. I was never in the bottom quarter after that, <laughs> uh, which is thankful because you needed to have a better dressage as time went on. You couldn't just rely on a good cross country and a clean show jumping. And then I also had, uh, through the Institute of Sport, I had um, sports psychology and that really helped me a lot and it also helped with my teaching but dressage was my biggest bogey I was a much more natural jumping rider and cross-country rider I suppose because of my early love for galloping <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then I had a career in dressage and I really I had to really learn a lot there and I had some very good very good coaches and um, you know and I got a, a horse that you know, wasn't I wasn't galloping around the place on anymore. So I got got past that stage of my life. Excellent. And um, you've you've already made us laugh quite a few times, but we wondered if there was a and we we have to say clean because we've had we've had some close calls, um, a clean but funny story from your time researching or delivering or or riding. Right. Well, one of the things my kids laugh about a lot is the, the day we, our whole family was at a one day event. And I was riding an Irish stallion and my youngest son was riding a horse that had been handed down by my older son. And my older son, Warwick, is a dressage trainer in Germany now. Um, and he's um, on the long list for the Australian team um, in dressage. So he's quite a good rider. But he started out in eventing, so he had a horse as well. My wife was riding. and So we're all riding at the same time. In the, and in the cross country, I don't know how many members of the family were riding at the time. And this is at a, um, a, a quite a big one-day event. But Warwick and I were on course at the same time. And I came galloping out of the bush and basically, well, he says I T-boned him, but I didn't touch him, but I cut him <laughs> off. <laughs> and he was really annoyed because I cut him off. Um, but a, a, a funny thing happened at Rodbaston in England as well. When I was, oh, yeah. I had, I had a very, in my clinic, so I always had a, quite a large audience. I think a lot of people were there because they really wanted to see what happened, you know, when you ride these horses. And so I had this horse that um, was someone's horse that had some really big problems in shying. And I was trying to show that it all boils down to the basics. And if you get the basics right, the chance of shying is lower. And, that, and that's true. I was riding this horse around the edge of the arena at Rodbaston, which is kind of dark and dusty. And um, in the corner was a, uh, be, almost beside where the audience was sitting in a dark corner was a 44-gallon drum with a basket on it. And I finally got this horse to the edge. 
and I'm riding around the edge and it wanted to sniff the basket and it put its head in the basket and got the basket caught on the bridle and took <sighs> off with me. Oh, no. And the basket. <laughs> anyway, so that was... Uh, You're back to was, your racing days then. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> All of death. I was very glad I could sit on a galloping horse. <laughs> Excellent. Did you stay on? I did, yes. Oh. And I went back and we, and I, we, we, grad, we got back to the corner, but he wasn't too sure about the corner after that because <laughs> bad right. things happen in that corner. He was actually right on that occasion. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Um, and Andrew, we always ask all of our uh, experts to pass on a relatable top tip. So something that our horse tribe can put into practice and, and take on board. What, what would that be? Well, for me, it's there are many things, but I think a really important one is to Look at everything from the horse's point of view and ask yourself, does, how many signals are we giving the horse at once? And remember that it's highly unlikely he can do two things at once because we can't. Um, and we know with other animals it's not possible. So um, think about that. And then that then begs the question, are the aids easily discriminated? And they need to be because so many behaviour problems arise from the fact that the aids are blurry or um, even not clearly trained because they've been included with other aids, um, with other signals, and it's quite difficult. And I'm not talking about body um, you know, signals from the rider because it's really important to ride well but and, you know, and go and be as good a rider as you possibly can so you can sit on the horse in the most innocuous way. But I'm talking about... Um, the aids that we give with reins and legs, um, they need to be really separated. And if, it's a, if the horse doesn't know the answer, separate them more and make them all really clear and go back to the basics. Oh, that's, that's, yeah. that's brilliant, brilliant advice. Yeah, yeah I, I like it when advice is simple and clear as well. And it literally is just slow down, separate everything, make it really clear. Thanks, Andrew. Um, so... Huge thanks for joining us today. And we'd love, first of all, for you to let our listeners know if they wanted to find out more about your work with horses and also the, um, it's H-E-L-P, isn't it? The Elephant uh, Foundation. Where can they find out more? Yes, it's a Human Elephant Learning Programs Foundation. Well, our horse uh, work is we run a a diploma, which is a government-recognised diploma. Um, We're actually a college. And that is on that the website for that is um, esi-education.com, um, and all the publications and the and the courses and diploma and the diploma we have is there. We have quite a few uh, people from the UK who've done the diploma. Um, I mean, UK is really interesting to me because it's it's quite forward thinking in the adoption and uptake of these big questions in equitation science, which um, on the other side of the big ditch, uh, the Atlantic, um, <laughs> they're, not so, they're not so open uh, at all mm. compared, which I find an interesting. I don't know quite why that is, probably because they have a tradition of horse whispering. I don't really know. Um, and the Elephant Foundation, the uh, Human Elephant Learning Programs, is um, h-elp.org. And um, so people can find out what we do there. Mm-hmm. We have a brand new initiative there because of the this awful situation with COVID. Um, 
you know, the loss of tourist dollars, but also the loss of uh, livelihoods in many er in many ways, and then the drought that was in, you know, ravaged parts of Southeast Asia, meant that the elephants had uh, no food, and so we've moved from being a training organisation to basically a survival organisation where we're raising money via that website to feed elephants, and so people have the choice on the website. I th I think it's up now. Uh, that's what we've been attempting to do in the last month. Um, and I don't deal with the IT, but what we will do is have, if we don't already, is have a button where they can choose to donate directly uh, to these organisations or through us directly to the organisations that need that need help to just raise money to feed elephants because it costs anything from um, $10 to $100 a day. They eat 250 kilograms of food. But anyway, I did, Sophie did, in my office did say to me, now don't, don't remember, don't talk about elephants too much. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've done it just enough. Just enough. Yeah. It's fascinating. It anyway, is. It's yeah. absolutely fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been absolutely awesome to hear more and find out more about the person behind the expertise, Andrew. And, um, I can, I can imagine exactly why those dressage people were totally silent at the end of the, the discussion. It's just fascinating to learn more from you. And you're going to be coming back um, and speaking to us on some webinars as well uh, later in the year. Really yeah, can't I can't wait, wait. for people to learn, so learn with you. It's going to be brilliant. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, um, we'll look forward to seeing you in um, November if we don't see you before yeah. um, for that webinar. So thanks, Andrew. Yeah, thanks. You're very welcome. Yeah, thanks, both of you. Thank you very much. See you then. Yeah, see you then. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Horsefest podcast. We'd love you to subscribe, rate and review the podcast and share it with your horse tribe. Keep tuning in for more episodes with elite riders, equestrian experts and special guests. <laughs>